Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and supporting us. We have an amazing guest, Precious Ephemera, which we'll get to in a minute. We just have a few announcements that we're very, very excited for because I think right now, especially during quarantine, it's so important to get connected, to stay connected, to feel connected, and to make sure that you're fostering those relationships, those communities those spaces and we're very excited to announce that we are part of a podcast network now that's not canon productions reached out to us zane who runs it he's over in australia we had a zoom meeting with someone in australia how cool is that that accent amazing anyway zane had come across the podcast he liked what he heard and he presented to us the opportunity to be part of a worldwide network based in Australia, which is super cool. They have a lot of great podcasts. They're focused on queer and female-led podcasts, and we're really excited to be part of that community and to have technological help that we need, some of the moral support that we need, um, and just have a community of folks trying to do the same thing we are, just trying to tell their stories and trying to be a part of something bigger. So thank you, That's Not Canon, for taking a chance on us and for letting us be a part of your community. And we're very, very excited for that. So more to come. You know, be sure to check out the other podcasts on That's Not Canon. But right now, you're here at Near and Queer to My Heart, and we're going to get to our episode. Now, Precious Ephemera has done pretty much everything. Precious defines herself as an entertainer because... Precious is an entertainer. Precious does everything. They're learning trapeze. They've done storytelling. They do videos. They do drag, burlesque, so much. And it was so great to talk to Precious. You know, Precious is someone that when we used to go out pre-COVID, I would see all the time. We would have these amazing conversations, but they would be in five-minute clips because somebody's getting to a show, coming from a show, other people are joining in the conversation. So it was great to really just sit down and have this wonderful conversation. So I won't hold this back anymore. Let's get to it. Please welcome Precious Ephemera. How are you doing? Hey, I'm pretty super okay. I'm very okay. (laughs) You know, I swear every single time, I I swear I'm not going to ask how somebody's doing, but I honestly... I just miss, I miss you. I miss seeing you perform. I miss being out and about. And I really am always like, I just want to know how you're doing. Yeah. Um, I've started asking folks, what is the last thing that you ate? And then I could be like, grapes and a sandwich. And that's how I feel today. <laughs> <laughs> is that the last thing you ate? 
Yeah. <laughs> With the turkey sandwich. With the grapes like on it or separately? Oh no, they were on the side. But I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past me to just smush some grapes right up in, in between the bread and go for it. I, I feel like quarantine has brought out the, the why not in me where I'm just like, well, why wouldn't I put those two things together? You like them separately. You like the grapes on the side. You like them with the turkey sandwich. Why not just put them all in one? Yeah, it's, there are lots of things that haven't happened before that are happening right now. So we can just welcome to the party. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of a free-for-all right now. It's all these things that you might have been scared of. And now you're like, well, we could just die by walking outside. So what what's it matter if I eat a sandwich with grapes in it? Yeah, I'm like, might as well try skydiving like from my roof, you know. <laughs> I, I hope you're in a one story <laughs> or have uh, watched enough YouTube videos to figure out the proper equipment. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I've known you, you've done Greetings from Queer Mountain Storytelling Show. I've seen you, uh, you host, produce a wonderful show called Horse Feathers. I've seen you in a variety of different performances. And I realize, you know, I don't, I'd like to know more about you. Where do you hail from? Where do you come from? Where were you born? Where were you raised? I was born in Michigan. I was brought up in a really rural sort of environment. I often say I cut my teeth in Chicago. And so I do say that, you know, I lived in Chicago the longest I lived anywhere. It just happened to be an adulthood. <laughs> but yeah, I I started performing in Chicago. I moved there in 2003. So prior to that, I had done a little bit of this and that here and there in Atlanta, but primarily like my sort of um, creative life really happened in in Chicago. And at the time, backstory, um, I performed as a persona that I referred to as the Trandroid. I was the Trandroid. From when to when? So that I started the Trandroid project in like 2009 or 2010. And it started out as a writing project because, I mean, that was really kind of the dawn of the, the internet that we know now. But, you know, we were writing these sort of like MySpace blogs and all kinds of things. And at the time I was still, I guess, a laggard is the term. I was still using live journal. And so... I was writing this character who was what I call an, I referred to Trandroid as a gender ambivalent android. And basically the narrative was, would go that like Trandroid could change hardware. So like the physical representation of the robot could change. And then the artificially intelligent component would be informed by these human interactions. So like, the trendroid would be figuring out this sort of gender expression with this constant sort of dissonance between hardware and software. And then a woman named Jennifer Murphy opened a bar called Parlor on Clark um, on the north side of Chicago, and they wanted someone to host a cabaret. So I just started, I brought Trandroid to the stage, and the, it kind of just snowballed from there. Do you remember your first host set? Do you remember what that was like? Um... I don't know if I remember the very first time that I I hosted. So I hosted all of the, the my first cabaret that I did was called Shits and Giggles. <laughs> and I, I hosted it from the jump. I don't specifically remember. No, to answer your question. No, I don't. Uh, I <laughs> But I did right away. I started emceeing. And it's still to this day, I think it's my primary talent. <laughs> <laughs> I love to perform. I love to create creative performances and I love storytelling and all these sort of like 
odd things. And since quarantine, I've been really very interested in making videos and short movies. But I think as a performer, like holding space for the audience has kind of been always my favorite thing. I will say that in the beginning, I had a lot of insecurity. And I think that that was reflected in the way that a lot of, I think, drag circles end up kind of looking where I was a little bit, well, you know, I'm just going to say that I was mean. I was not, I wasn't awesome. Yeah, no, there's, there's a fine line between like, I guess, for a better word, sassy, I guess, and mean. I think you can be on stage and kind of poke fun and not hurt feelings. And then there's like a very fine line where, where that can get crossed. Um, you, so you think that comes from an insecurity or just maybe that's the examples that people see? or? Well, I think that's a really, I think it's a good thing to unpack in therapy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think for me that it was definitely, um, I was the kind of person who would make up for, a, like I would overcompensate for a lack of self-esteem. <laughs> and so that, that ended up like, I would, I didn't do a very good job listening. I would cut people off a lot. I would kind of um, decide for the audience and people how they feel. And it took a while to establish kind of the, the relationship with the audience and now it's something that I treasure. But yeah, I think that I would, if I had to like chalk it up to one thing, I think I was young and insecure. I was afraid of what people thought of me. I always think it's so interesting that like a lot of performers, you know, have a lot of insecurities, but they're also out on stage doing, you know, performing for people and being out in the public and putting themselves out there in that, in that way. And it's interesting that some insecurities can, can push people to, to our to perform and to do all these amazing things that even you know some people who are the most secure with themselves would never imagine doing. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I I have a really introverted personality type, so it's it's baffling to me that even that I get on stage and perform in front of people <laughs> ever. <laughs> but I I think um, in Myers Briggs I'm an INFJ, so we have like a good sort of ability to kind of like work within that context but yeah I I really I also uh w- you know one of the things like when I first you know started seeing you perform and, and getting to know you I just I love your name precious ephemera and I actually realized ephemera is one of those words that I've always heard and I acted like I knew what it meant and then I realized today when I was preparing for this that I had no idea what it what it actually you know meant and entailed so I looked it up I did the, you know, Webster's Dictionary defines, but actually dictionary.com defines because, you know, we're in the new age of technology here. Ephemera is a plural word, which I didn't know. The definition they give is just anything short-lived or ephemeral. I, I wanted to know where that where that came from. And did you choose the plural form of that for a reason? It's ephemeron is the singular, which I didn't, I did not know that was a word. <laughs> uh, maybe you, you did. You're probably on it more than I am. I was wondering how you got your stage name, if there were other iterations of that, like how that came about and was the choosing the plural a conscious choice? So to short answer that, yes, I did choose ephemera, but I have a I have a lot I have a lot to say about this. I really love my performer name. Um and I, I think it's really a reflection of my personal, professional and creative evolution. And I think for anybody it's you know, if you've been doing anything for 20 years, there's a lot of context and a lot of sort of texture to the things that that we make. And for a while, I took I dialed back and took some time away from performing. And so to kind of, 
I guess, paint the picture a little bit more clearly. I performed as Trandroid in Chicago up until 2013, and I ran into a lot of conflict. There's this sort of like um, explosion of local celebrity sort of thing that like, I don't think anybody's really, some people, I guess, handle it really well, but I really internalized a lot of I don't know. There was there was just a lot for me to work through. And I definitely needed to seek some help in the mental health sector to make it through there. But very specifically, I had a friend who is trans and like questioned or criticized my use of um, identifying as transroid because of associating trans people with like robots or like with literal objects. And so That was something that I really took to heart. And I was like, I don't know if I can really um, move forward continuing to use this name. But I had all of these sort of like photos and memorabilia and all this kind of stuff that was precious to me. So the word ephemera, one, it kind of is a classification of insects. It's like insects that die in a day. And so there's something like really super grotesque about that that I really enjoy. It's sort of like a bug word. but Ephemera, like if you um, ever see like an ephemera collection in a library or anything like that, it's just it's a collection of things like postcards or playbills or um, little things that are essentially meaningless autographs, for instance, but they have a lot of sentimental value. And so when I was coming back to this stage, I'm really I'll say this forever, but I'm just really grateful for for Bella Blue kind of holding my hand through that process because I was pretty I was a pretty wounded animal. And coming back to the stage was a process for me. I wanted to kind of remember the way things were before, but still like trailblaze something new. And so I wanted the idea of like being a burlesque dancer to have sort of like, you know, a burlesque dancer kind of comes with a wink and a smile, but I just want to give you something for the fridge. (laughs) Like I want to give you a little keepsake or something to remember me by, you know? So I I love that um, as an idea. So I, I still really, I'm, I, I think I nailed it when it comes to, <laughs> to the, the persona yeah. and the, the brand, as it were, I guess. <laughs> I love that name because I think it is very um, uplifting and it has like a, to me, a, a positivity to it. And, but I just didn't know where, you know, how that, that came about. So that trying to not unpack, but discuss, you know, sometimes I think these turn into therapy sessions where I'm just like, and how did that make you feel? But you were saying like the local scene kind of blew up in Chicago or where you meant for you, like you were blowing up and, and was that just being recognized places or having expectations put on you or I guess a little more about, about that, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. I mean, well, I want to, first of all, say like, thank heavens to Betsy for therapy. So the events that I was creating ended up becoming wildly popular in a short amount of time. So it was sort of this rapid growth that took place. And then I started, you know, collaborating with more people. So I didn't necessarily have the the skill set to know what collaboration might look like in terms of curating, um, trying to create space, things like that. When I was when I was making work in Chicago, I was working in a neighborhood that didn't necessarily have a queer presence in terms of like uh, nightlife and events at that time. Which now Logan Square is a huge like queer mecca, but at that time there wasn't a whole lot going on. So we were kind of doing something that was really special. And I'm really proud of the work that I did in Chicago. And then 
I ended up running into some creative conflicts with a couple of people that I was collaborating with. And um, I didn't necessarily know how to um, have boundaries or manage relationships. And so I made a lot of pretty significant mistakes. And one thing that I think is really important to talk about today, well, I mean, at this moment in time and throughout history altogether, was that there was just a lot of um, mistakes that I made because I didn't understand the power dynamics that were in play. And as a queer person, I didn't know how to take responsibility for really centering myself and my own kind of whiteness in the relationships and the dynamics that were playing out as we were kind of building a community atmosphere. And so it took a long time to really understand how I contributed to those conflicts and how the problem of systemic racism is something that's so deeply entrenched in who we are. And like on a fundamental level, like white people have to change internally. And so I think that was a huge factor for me. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like throughout everything you said so far, you, you're very self-aware and willing to to put in the work and not just saying, oh, this is how I'm going to do things and I'm not going to take this into account. Like, you know, you've really been willing to put in that work and also, you know, to talk about it now, which is really great because I, I do think that's part of the, it's not the solution for everything, but I think it's it's part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think it's important that we, I'm, I'm trying not to use the word normalize, <laughs> but like we can acknowledge that we've made mistakes. And I think that we need to have more pathways for like, for like how to apologize or how to take action in in an effort that like really sort of demonstrates a significant change in in behavior and operating with an awareness that you know when you when you learn things that you didn't know before you know well I guess being able to learn them is (laughs) (laughs) but there's a difference between you know between thought and action or between just saying like this is a safe space versus actually putting the work in to make this a safe space and also defining who the, what the safe space is and who it's for and you know those intentions like there's a difference between just saying it and actually doing it yeah absolutely you realize that but i don't know you know there's a lot more people that need to get on board with, with that okay so so for me it is you know i see you now and i see you like horse feathers which and I, I don't know what the plans are for the future as far as virtual, but that was a phenomenal show over at Cafe Istanbul, which was this huge, beautiful venue with good sound systems. And you had folks doing trapeze from the ceiling and all sorts of amazing, <laughs> wonderful things. So I see you with that. I've seen you at Queer Mountain telling these stories and sharing and having, you know, this confidence and, and radiating with that. You know, I know it sounds like there was a time when the, your self-esteem wasn't at the same place that... I see it now. So I guess what I wanted to ask is, what was that journey like? And do you have any any advice that you've learned? We all struggle with that. And especially now with COVID and quarantine and not having the same outlets that we had. Sometimes, you know, things can get difficult. So I think that journey is important. And then any sort of, you know, tips that you have you know, might be beneficial for folks. Yeah, I think, well, I think for me, and a major part of my sort of transition or like how I got really comfortable. I think my own internal conflicts with gender had, you know, informed a lot of my substance abuse behaviors in my late 20s. And so in my early 30s, you know, I had to sober up. That's a part of my story. And I think that there's a million ways for folks in our community to do that. But I do think that like, 
we don't, <laughs> we have kind of a predisposition to substance abuse disorder just because so many of our events and community things are saturated in drugs and alcohol. And like that, I think the process of being in recovery was something that really made me available to seek therapy. And so that paired with like a long-term yoga practice helped me kind of shift my perspective to where like now when I think about human interaction, I just, I think about it more in ways of like how we can be of service to each other and less about how I don't belong in the world. (laughs) So I've kind of stopped thinking about like whether or not I, uh, like whether or not I qualify and I just try and bring whatever, I just try and do my best. And I try and trust that other people are doing their best as well. And I think that's kind of like the baseline that I try and sit with. I don't know if it necessarily is working, but I seem to have a little bit more peace than I used to have. (laughs) And so I think that that shift from thinking about how I can contribute to my community and how people can be of service to each other instead of thinking in or acting from a place of like self-pity really kind of made the difference for me moving forward. And I guess to sum it up, it's not that I feel like I'm better off um, per se, but I do feel like I operate with a baseline of peace. I have a little bit more peace in my life than I used to have in my late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. And I think, I do think a lot of it, I hate to say comes with age, but also experience. I know, you know, when I first started performing and collaborating, I wasn't as particular with who I would collaborate with because I just wanted to collaborate and do things. And then you start to realize that, you know, sometimes things could be problematic and you're trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate that. And as you get older, you're, at least for me, I'm more okay with saying like, I don't want to do this project or I'm not okay with that. Whereas when I was younger, that was a lot harder for me to get out there. Yeah, I think I can say I can share that sentiment that like I <laughs> in in more areas than just performance, I was definitely willing to just like be with anybody who would have me <laughs> like in any context. <laughs> and so I think learning to be a little bit more self-directed. I don't know if if I would have learned that without having made the mistakes that I made though. So I think when I see people who are in a process or who are maybe younger, not to throw it in that direction, but I have a lot of appreciation and a lot of love for what that part of their story might look like. Cause I just, I, I think of my wrongdoings, my mistakes and all of those things is just so valuable to who I am. Yeah, absolutely. And I probably should have asked this earlier um, because I think you do so many types of performances and I, I probably don't even know every type of performance you do, but how do you categorize or classify yourself as a performer? Like if if you, <laughs> if I was a, a manager, you know, looking to, looking to hire you, well, what would you tell me as far as what you do? Yeah, I've kind of settled into using the word entertainer. I think like, it's so tricky. It's like, people have so many kind of opinions about like, whether you want to call yourself a drag artist or a drag queen or this or that. But basically, since I started putting on makeup since I was 17, there was this crossover between my personal identity politics, which I still didn't, I still don't really have a whole grip on that. But also like, performance as I understood it from the people who were giving examples around me. So I have always played with the nature of drag in that like I really love fashion and I love celebrating womanhood. 
And so there's some variations of drag that I think are a caricature of womanhood, which I think could be questionable. (laughs) (laughs) But I love the world that we're living in now where like drag performance has such a spectrum of expression and like the more variant it is, it seems to be the more celebrated it is. Whereas like when I started doing drag, like it was, you know, before YouTube. And so I was just like this little Twinkie Maybelline queen, but like I felt beautiful. So like, I feel like the drag aspect still had an effect, even though I would never have qualified for Instagram in 2005, you know? Don't say that. (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) Before RuPaul's Drag Race (laughs) time. Yeah. I think like like it is drag, like what I do. But I also just like, I don't know, I think that um, I like to play with so many different mediums that I think like there's an element of clowning. And now I've started learning trapeze, which I must say my, is maybe the one of the hardest things I've ever done. But I truly love it. And I have such a deeper appreciation for aerial artists all over. But I just think like I, I want to explore because I don't necessarily think of drag or art in general, as like a a career path so much as it's just like this, if I could quit it, I would. (laughs) But I just like, it's such a part of my lifeblood. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, that's some, you know, I I describe comedy sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's it's the same adrenaline rush that you get from skydiving or like, it's just, there's this a certain uh, rush that hits you that nothing else does the trick for and that you crave all the time when you're not doing it. Yeah. I think I have like a particular sickness because like I'm constantly thinking about like I I can associate all the different sort of things that I see. And I think for drag, a lot of times it's like I hear a song and I think about it as a performance or like a phrase in the song. And I'm like, I should make a video where I just am throwing beats at a wall. Um, but I don't, I don't know what, what compels me to do these things. I think that there's just an internal creative drive that I don't have a way to pinpoint or like a, put my finger on. Yeah. I, I understand that. Um, what, what got you to New Orleans? What was your, were you Chicago to New Orleans? I know you mentioned Atlanta. How'd you end up in New Orleans? What got you here? Yeah. So things were kind of blowing up in Chicago and, you know, I was sort of having a personal meltdown and I decided like, I just needed to leave Chicago, which to this day, I will tell you is one of the smartest things I ever did. I think that that's Chicago and I are not a match, but um, I had never been to New Orleans before at all, but a local performer from New Orleans had come to my cabaret, Shits and Giggles, and I think many of your listeners might know who Neon Burgundy is. But Neon Burgundy came to my performance of Shits and Giggles at an event called Salonathon at Beauty Bar in Chicago in 2013. And then we developed a correspondence. And so when I decided it was time for me to leave Chicago, I was making plans to move to Berlin. But they were just like, why don't you come down to New Orleans? I have a spare room. And so when I first moved to New Orleans, I lived with Neon Burgundy for six months. And that was sort of my gateway to the city. But I, I left Chicago in in the dead of winter. And I remember getting off the train. I took the city of New Orleans down and I got off the train in Jackson, Mississippi. And it was like 45 degrees. And I was like, this is tropical. <laughs> and then when I arrived in New Orleans, I think she did her typical sort of hazing ritual that she does on a lot of us that she chooses to embrace. <laughs> 
And so I love New Orleans and I'm really grateful for all of the, the hardship that she sort of sent my way right away because it did nice swift kick in the pants there. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? what is the, ha- are you allowed to talk about the hazing process or is it like fight club, you're not allowed to talk about it? I feel like when, you know, for some folks, when we move to New Orleans, it's sort of, it's spiritual. It's almost like a magical thing. Like I just was spiritually sort of stubbing my toe everywhere I went, like, I got into bike accidents with my car, I, or not with my car, with, on my bike. And like my I, my backpack was stolen like three times, you know, just sort of like these things that are like, it seems like there's like sort of these roadblocks or these sort of like acts of God in your way. But truthfully, I think the mentality of living most of my 20s in Chicago with like little to no social skills, <laughs> I was really like sort of moving really fast through life. And I think New Orleans really demands a very specific brand of surrender. And like, I needed to learn that. Yeah, no, because I, uh, I'm from Los Angeles. And before I lived in New Orleans, I was in New York. So I was definitely at this like fast pace. Like when I walked places, I'm like, why aren't people keeping up with me? Why don't they want to walk three blocks? They want to try like it was just maddening. And then it's kind of like, well, what are we rushing for? And you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I was just told I should always get places faster and do things faster. And then you're like, I don't need to do that. Yeah. I don't think we realize that we're operating with a sort of like baseline anxiety in these like metropolitan areas. More or less lately, I'm all like, it's capitalism. Everything is capitalism. (laughs) It definitely is. Because like when I was in New York, it was, you know, it was more about going to the club versus the the dive bar. It was, you know, what brands of clothes you're wearing, like what, you know, you I was in school and I planned to get a corporate job because there's a there's corporate jobs to get there. You move to New Orleans and it's like we have the oil industry kind of like there's not there's that ladder isn't even there to climb. So you're just like, well, cool, let's go party. You know, let's go uh, try comedy or performing or just doing these different things that in New York or maybe Chicago you had time for. But for me, I was like, I don't have time for this. I have to do all these other things. And it's like you don't have to do anything. Yeah, I remember when I, um, you know, I first moved to New Orleans, I lived in the Bayou St. John neighborhood. And so I just like kind of developed this like really deep relationship with the Bayou and kind of walking by. And there was this woman, Miss Ruby, and I would sit with her on her porch. And I remember just like sort of like it was around sunset time or whatever. And, you know, there was some music coming by. And she just said to me, she was like, I feel like you feel like singing. And I was like, I feel like singing all the time. And she was just like, I've never seen you sing. And it just like, it made me think. The thing that I really love about New Orleans for creative people is that like, no one is going to hold you back. Like, you don't need to qualify. <laughs> like, <laughs> just do it. Just show up, grab a mic, do an open mic. It's available. And not only is it like you're allowed, like it's sort of like a baseline expectation that you kind of live your truth. Yeah. I mean, I think so too, because because it's such a party city um, and we have... This sounded like an advertisement for Party City. <laughs> but we're, we're very much parades for every holiday, people dressing in, co- like every, you know, people that don't perform dressing in costume in elaborate, beautiful costumes. We have balls all the time. There's, you know, St. Patty's Day, we have a parade. And St. Joseph's Day, we have a parade. And Mardi Gras, and when the Saints win the Super Bowl, and any reason we have to, to close the streets down <laughs> and, and march down them, we do it. And everyday people are just, you know, everyone's so beautifully costumed that, when you're performing, it's like, you got to step your game up, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's super true. Like, with horse feathers, I 
definitely wanted to kind of create an experience that felt kind of like, I was like, I want to make something as big as the MGM Grand. (laughs) (laughs) But I just like, I really wanted this like production value. And so it's interesting the way that that sort of like, I don't know how to say there's, there's a lot of grit in New Orleans and like a lot of like, and like that adds a texture to like the work that gets made, the art that gets shared all of that stuff is really beautiful. So like when you try to polish it up, it has like kind of a different sheen than it would have anywhere else. And so I just, I'm like, I'm kind of holding my heart thinking about how wonderful it is to share music and performance in this city because it's just not like anywhere else. Yeah. And that's what I really like is you are free in a way that you're not free in other places. Yeah. And I think there isn't this expectation for you know, like if you're if you're taking a microphone, it's not about like, oh, this person is training to be, you know, uh, on Broadway or like this, per- you know what I mean? It's like, this person's making music. Yeah. I was like, we don't, we, we already established there's no industries here. So there's nowhere <laughs> to go, but where you already are. <laughs> yeah. Why Berlin? So you're on your way to Berlin and you took a, a stopover in, in New Orleans and, and here you are. What was what was attractive about Berlin? Yeah, I dated someone for a while who was like constantly back and forth between Chicago and Berlin and just basically from stories. I don't know if it was necessarily Berlin in particular so much as it was like it's a place that's queer, it's a place where like people can thrive just like making art and like I think the sentiment that I had was more anywhere but here and that place sounds pretty good, you know? And I just I had no idea, I had no expectations for New Orleans, but she definitely had plans for me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. So the show, I know the, sh- the monthly show that you were running here, and I hope whenever this COVID shit is over, it continues on live when we're, you know, when it's safe and we're able to do that. Horse Feathers, how did you come up with that name? And were there other other options you were playing with? Well, here's a little piece of nostalgia for from Precious Ephemera to you. <laughs> But that my show, Shits and Giggles, that I used to host always had like a little theme. And so the particular, like it would be like Shits and Giggles Sizzle or Shits and Giggles Summer Queerance or like, you know, different things. Um, And the one show that Neon Burgundy came to was called Horse Feathers. And so when I thought I'm going to produce my first show in New Orleans, I thought, it would be appropriate to do a throwback to the the show that got me there. You know, the the, the Marx Brothers had a movie called Horse Feathers, right? Is yeah. Is that too old for people to, to reference? Like a 1932 movie? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yes, that is too old. <laughs> that is. And I didn't know if it, it came from that. <laughs> no, there's also a band called Horse Feathers. Yeah, when I, when I was young, my dad used to, they have a, being in LA, like they used to play all the old classics and he used to take us all the time. And I just thought that's what everybody did, but talk about these, yo, the Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy, and no one had any idea what I was talking about. So I know that you had mentioned um, that you'd lived in Atlanta for a time. So I do want to ask about that. Uh, How old were you? When did you get there? What was it like? Tell me all about it. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I had a high school boyfriend. My senior year of high school, it was a very sweet little relationship. We were very young and impressionable. But he had gone to Florida for spring break. Um, and they had driven down and he stopped through Atlanta. And he when he got back, he said that he saw two men holding hands on the street in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And I was like, let's move there. That was 100% the the absolute reason um, why we ended up there. You know, I think it's just like kind of a sign of the times. This was the year 2000. So, you know, it was aside from Ellen coming out, we didn't necessarily have the sort of general awareness that we're privileged to enjoy today about queer identities, things like that. And I, when I arrived in Atlanta, Georgia, I had $35 in my pocket. I was just like, whatever it takes, it doesn't matter. I just had to get out of my tiny little town if I was going to survive. I guess, so when you're saying you you had to get out of there for survival, was it, was it, were you, were you out and was that problematic? Was that, or was it just a personal, the survival, like an internal? Yeah, I think, you know, at the time, like I was suffering from a lot of like adjustment disorder. Like I had come out to my family my senior year and there was just a lot of turbulence about like what people were going to think, all of that kind of stuff. And um, so it's it's hard to to kind of like have like quantitative versus qualitative memory, right? But I remember feeling very threatened. And there were like instances where people put roadkill in my mailbox with death threats, you know? So like whether or not those types of people are serious, or like whether whatever their intentions behind it were, you know, like I took it pretty seriously. Yeah. I don't know how to, I guess that's the way to say that. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a, that, that's very scary. And I think it's also scary and and very brave to come out. So, you know, so young, I talk to a lot of people that, you know, they say, Oh, I I wish I would have come out when I was younger. And I think that too, I came out in my twenties and I, and I think oh, if I really had put the effort into getting to know myself, I would have known then and I probably should have come out. But I was I was scared of exactly those things. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, you were able to to see that in yourself and, and, and come out. And that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think I mean, I think many people in rural areas throughout the country still sort of face that um, level of uncertainty and terror. <laughs> like I laugh. That's so wrong. But I think that we have so much more representation in the media now. Like I talk about this with my partner all the time. You know, when we were impressionable, when we were 15 years old, like I had Angela Chase from my so-called life, right? Mm -hmm. Teen depression was all the rage. And then like the only examples I had of queer people were Matthew Shepard or like Brandon Tina. So like literally the only people from like middle America who were queer were the examples were murdered, (laughs) you know? And so like now we have celebration and representation and all of this kind of stuff. So like whenever people are critical of things like RuPaul's Drag Race or whatever, I'm like, that's cool. Like it's a privilege to be critical of that, you know? Yeah. No, I I try to to think about, you know, how how far. I know there's a very long way to go for a lot of different things. But in in our lifetimes, like things have come really far. And And I always talk about that representation of if you know, when I was younger, if Ellen had come out and then wasn't totally shunned, not only was she shunned from public life, but Laura Dern, who played her partner, didn't get a job for three years. And Oprah got death threats because she played the therapist on the coming out episode. Everyone that even touched it, you know, was facing repercussions. And that's what you saw. And you saw that and you're like, I don't want that. And for me, I, you know, just said, oh, I'll focus on school. I, I won't focus on dating and you know figuring that part of my life out and I put it away in a box and I do think now if there was a representation that there was now it might be a different story but you don't know and you can't go back in time and 
also, it doesn't matter. I am who I am today because of the experiences I had. Absolutely. And I think about it, you know, in, I, I said it before, but I'm like, I'm so thrilled and so excited to like live and participate in a community where I get to learn from young people. Um, because when I was 18 and making my way, like drag queens were kind of the only sort of gender variant expression that I understood. We didn't have the language of non-binary. Those conversations were like maybe being held in certain circles, but like when I arrived in Atlanta with $35 in my pocket, I wasn't going to Emory University to have those conversations. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah. So, you know, through throughout like kind of the lived experiences of that, like in my late 20s is when I really started um, learning about gender theory. I remember finding out who Judith Butler was and was like, what? You know, and like all of these kinds of things were so thrilling. But, you know, I learned it when I was 28 and people today might be learning it when they're 15, 16 years old. But like my partner's from Oakland. So like the experience of queer people at his age was actually completely different than what mine is. So like I can't just be like, well, now times are different than they were before. But I, 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 the punctuation mark that I would like to leave on it is that I'm just so thrilled and blessed and so excited to like live in a world where these conversations are happening and like these expressions are flying all over the stages. I just, I love it. Yeah. I know the the history of drag and even, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race does receive a lot of criticism and and a lot of, I I guess, defining who can do drag and who should do drag and and what drag means and, and what it should look like. You know, I, I think it's great to, like you said, it's a privilege to have those conversations. I really like that wording. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they're, I think, you know, we're, we're shifting in a, in a way where like we're interacting with technology in new ways. And like, we are running into a lot of problems with that, right? Like, because we're rapidly flinging information everywhere all the time. And I think that at some point we have to stabilize around the kinds of like sort of conversations that we have. And we, we, I think many circles of people are learning how to have them more intentionally. I think it's important that we're able to criticize our government. I think it's important that we're able to criticize RuPaul's representation of (laughs) drag queens or drag as a culture or anything like that. And so, like, I think that that's really good. And I think that we can dial back from some of the some of the venom with which people kind of grip into things. But I don't necessarily know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, things have because I I come from a Jewish family. And like, if you spend time with us, we sound like we're fighting all the time. Like we sound like we can't agree on anything, but that's like how we communicate. But at the end of the day, like we all have love for each other and there's no hatred and it doesn't get that venom, but it still sounds like it might sound to the outsider like that. So I don't know a way to translate that to like the political, economic, uh, environmental climate that we have, you know, where it's like we can disagree and you can have a debate about it, but you don't have to, basically polarize yourself into these two camps and you hate everyone who's a libtard or you hate everyone who's conservative or a Trumpite or whatever. Like you can, you can try to find that middle ground. And even when people come together and have those conversations, you could actually enlighten yourself and learn something different. Absolutely. Um, Last night or not last night, the night before 24 robbers came and knocking at my door. I watched the social dilemma did you do you know about this on Netflix? I know about it, but I haven't I haven't seen it. Yeah, it might it might sound like I'm like pitching it, but 
you know, like I have some criticisms of it because there's sort of like a fictional narrative alongside this uh, imperative. But the, a lot of what that's talking about is like the way that artificial intelligence, you know, I guess to circle back to the beginning of our conversation with Trandroid, right, is that like, we've always been afraid that artificial intelligence was going to like surpass human intelligence, right? And like one of the arguments that this one person, Tristan, makes in the film is that like artificial intelligence has already surpassed sort of our base animal impulses. So like we get manipulated by these, the way that we interact with the social media, things like that, it like shows us more of what uh, triggers us. And so it's just, it's so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the the kind of like takeaway is that like our internet relationship is actually like creating our reality and it's creating this sort of divisions because we're we're actually more attracted to extremes than we even comprehend. And the artificial intelligence is just serving us up more of what we crave. And so... Since quarantine, I've actually, I've deleted the social media from my phone and I've turned off all of my notifications. And like that, I have to say, has been the most liberating thing about this experience. It's like, I choose when I see the news, I choose when I look through the feed, but like the phone doesn't ask me to. And it's kind of, I don't know, revolutionary. It's really nice. When, whenever, I don't know, as long as I've had a Facebook app, I have turned off the notifications because For me, it drives me nuts when my phone shows an alert at all. And when it was just showing these Facebook alerts for every little thing that happens on Facebook, and I just, I couldn't deal with it. So when I shut it off, and I realized the same thing, like I choose to go on Facebook a few times a day when I'm ready to, and especially now when I'm ready to absorb or see or react to or, you know, whatever, everything that's going on on Facebook. So it really does help with the peace of mind. Um, I also, you know, I was getting these news alerts and I'd wake up to these, you know, five things you need to know about the world today. And all five of them were fucking terrible. And you don't, you don't have to put yourself through that. You know, you can, (laughs) you can decide to, when you're ready, when you have a glass of wine or when you're doing yoga or whatever, you know, relaxes you, you can say, now I have a bowl of ice cream in front of me. Now I can see what's going on in the world because I, I can, I can handle it. <laughs> yeah, like I have my armor. <laughs> yeah, sometimes like I, I have, you have to wear a helmet when you check your phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's like you want to throw it, but you can't throw it because it's way too expensive to, to lose. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to ask, I guess, before we, we wrap this up. I, I know that you're, would you say a yogi? Is that the right, like you're into yoga? Is that, is that the proper term? Yeah. I, so I don't, I don't think we use the language of yogi necessarily, but I'm, yeah, I, I'm a yoga instructor. I mean, like we could talk for a whole bunch of time and I teach seminars on like the problem, the conundrum of like yoga in the West. I teach an entire seminar called California Spirituality, as a matter of fact. (laughs) But yeah, I started practicing yoga when I first moved to Chicago, and that was in 2003. And so it's been 17 years. And the culture of yoga has changed a lot, but I'm really grateful to have this practice in my life and to be able to share it with people. I do think that the yoga that I was taught and taught to teach is a lot of commercialization has happened with yoga. And nowadays, yoga is more like marketed as a beauty product to women. Whereas I think that yoga 
in and of itself is sort of a tool for self-knowledge. And it's very simple. So I think we get the idea that like if we practice yoga, we'll become better people, which is a little bit antithetical to the Eastern ways of thinking, right? <laughs> it's very, that's very Western and individualist. Yes. <laughs> so like practicing yoga is a really good way to make, it's a good way to make nothing happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love yoga and I love being able to share my perspective from my experience on yoga. And I still have a lot to learn. I mean, like when we think about the history of yoga and the fact that we're learning it and practicing it, but my family didn't sort of gift me this practice. And so I don't, I have a lot of um, listening and learning to do when it comes to being a person who shares yoga with other people. I maybe bit off more than I could chew with that question, but. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're saying because yoga, it's not about like I do yoga and now I'm a better person. And it has a history to it that I also feel a lot of Western folks don't know. For sure. So yeah. I don't know if you can summarize your, your seminar <laughs> briefly for us or, or maybe just an experience of, of, blowing somebody's mind with the information and the history that you're sharing with them. How, how is that? To put a nice little bow on when I am teaching, like, because I, te I teach two weekly classes, still like public classes, I teach via Zoom. And I just, I really try my best to kind of meet people where they are. And like people come to class with expectations. And there is, you know, a lot of sort of misconceptions about what yoga is and what it's supposed to do for you. And at the end of the day, I think when people are coming together and trying to practice yoga, I want to really create an open container for that. And I want to help people kind of find a way to have some reverence for the cultures where these practices originate in a way that's respectful and honoring and not necessarily just sort of this American sort of flippant disregard for the sacred history of a lot of these practices. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess for me, so since quarantine, and I actually asked this question on Facebook because I was looking into like meditation or yoga or something to like relax because my mind moves like a million miles a minute. I have the kind of work that when crisis happens, like we now work more than ever and I don't have the social outlets I have. So I was kind of looking into to that. Do you recommend yoga for someone like me? I recommend yoga for for everyone. And also with a, a caveat of that, it's like, it's a lot like finding a therapist or finding a massage therapist. Like the relationship that you have with the person who's sharing the yoga practice with you, one, can change over time. But also like that, I think, is an important factor. In addition, the community in which you're practicing yoga should also be able to meet you where you are. So I think a lot of yoga that's available, sadly, there's sort of like a prescription of what the yoga practice is supposed to look like. And I really prefer to try and help students find a yoga practice that works for them where they are. So I think, you know, it's possible that sitting down and doing something quietly or getting questions answered on a one-on-one -on -one level might be something to do after you try a couple of classes right because like I sometimes I'll describe it like yoga is like having sex for the first time it's like it's going to be awkward things are going to go in the wrong place like it's not going to necessarily be like the smoothest but you've definitely heard that this is supposed to feel good so you might keep trying you know <laughs> Yes. Well, you've convinced me now. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, it's worth a shot. I mean, the sex worked out all right. Yeah. 
Oh, we should put that like on a bumper sticker, right? Like do yoga, sex works, doesn't it? Or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good note to wrap things up on. (laughs) If you want to let folks know where they can find you on social media, any sort of projects you have coming up, any classes, any, anything you want to promote, uh, just let folks know how they can find you. Sure. Um, I'm precious ephemera everywhere. So and then right now, what I'm, I'm really, I guess I should say this is that I am working on developing my like newsletter sort of relationships. So like, I'm very much interested if people want to be in an email relationship, sort of uh, find out what's going on, because I'm really looking at alternative ways of staying connected that don't involve sort of the manipulative capitalistic endeavors of social media. And so I think. I want to kind of have more of a kind of a salon type newsletter. Future is that we're going to kind of move away from these sort of social networks and move more into like private networks again. And so I I think that we don't necessarily have the interface for what that looks like yet, but I think smaller communities of people will start organizing in social circles. I think Facebook groups started to kind of create a trend along those lines, but I think private networks are going to be you know, mark my words. So <laughs> that's my my futurist manifesto. Well, th- thanks so much for doing the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait until we can go play in the real world. I know. <laughs> thank you. We'd like to thank our guest, Precious Ephemera, for sharing their world with us. Special thank you to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing this podcast. We'd love to hear from you on social media. We'd love a shout out. We'd love a hey, what's up? How's it going? You can find us on Twitter at Queer to My Heart, on Instagram and Facebook at Near and Queer to My Heart. Hope to see you all around. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.